Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guests today are Krista Jenkins, Ph.D., who is Professor of Politics and Government, and Julie Kalabalik Hoganson, PharmD, who is Director of Pharmacy Practice, both at Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey. We will discuss pharmacists in the front lines of COVID-19. Julie is Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Fairleigh Dickinson University School of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. She coordinates and teaches several courses in the Doctorate of Pharmacy program. She is a registered pharmacist in New Jersey and is dual board certified in pharmacotherapy and critical care. Krista is the director of Fairleigh Dickinson University's Survey Research Center, the FDU poll. She is the author or co-author of A New Engagement, Political Participation, Civic Life and the Changing American Citizen, Mothers, Daughters, and Political Socialization, and Where Have All the Heroes Gone? Krista and Julie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with something really basic. This is a point of confusion, I think, for some people, this concept of a coronavirus and COVID-19, because there are a number of coronaviruses. So, Julie, if you would get us started with that, what's the difference between coronavirus and COVID-19? Certainly. The coronaviruses are a family of viruses that can cause illnesses such as the common cold, the severe acute respiratory syndrome known as SARS, and Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS. The virus responsible for our current uh, pandemic is now known as the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, or SARS-CoV-2. The disease that it causes is called Coronavirus Disease 2019, or COVID-19. So the coronavirus is the virus itself, and the disease it produces in a person is COVID-19. And it gets even more complicated, right? Because I just read recently that there are at least eight different strains of the coronavirus that causes the COVID-19. Is that right? That is correct. The strains um, may vary, and uh, it's been compared to influenza or the flu that has multiple strains, which is why we need different vaccines every year to be produced. So we're dealing with uh, a virus that can change rapidly over time, and um, its presentation may change as well. So you two worked on a poll to ask respondents their views on the COVID-19 pandemic. Would you tell us what that entailed, when was it conducted, how was it conducted? Sure. So uh, Julie and I are colleagues at Fairleigh Dickinson, and um, she came to me with a suggestion that we poll on a series of questions related to um, how pharmacy um, and pharmacists are um, related to the, the current pandemic, um, and also attitudes toward um, people's prescription drug um, availability, because as I'm sure your listeners are aware, there has certainly been some um, concern raised about um, people's availability or people's, um, you know, fears that maybe the, the, the drugs that they need to take, you know, apart from this pandemic uh, may start to, you know, be more difficult to get. So anyway, Julie came to me, and so we worked on this survey. And um, 
So we asked a series of questions, all of which I'm sure we'll be talking about over the next hour or so. Um, and this was a survey that was done nationally. It was uh, that the, the interviews were conducted between March 17th through March 22nd of this year, 2020. Uh, we uh, we spoke with 1,008 uh, U.S. adults aged 18 and older. This was a probability sample, which um, basically means that, you know, everybody in the in the uh, population of interest, you know, the United States had an equal chance of being selected. We conducted interviews um, using both landlines as well as cell phones with a preponderance of interviews conducted on cell phones. And um, interviews were conducted in both English and Spanish. Uh, the margin of error for this survey, for those who are, for those who are interested, is, um, is, excuse me, I'm just looking forward here, it is uh, three and a half percentage points. So um, pretty good, pretty good data that we have here today. And um, um, yeah, so that's that's basically what Julie and I did. And what did you ask them? Well, um, we asked them a series of questions, again, um, starting with questions about their uh, the concern that they may have about their availability of the prescription drugs that they're taking. And if they are concerned, what what are people doing in order to mitigate those concerns? And we'll certainly talk about the various responses that we got to that question. We asked about um, whether or not people would be willing to to take a vaccine should it become available um, for the pandemic. And um, then we also asked questions related to um, how likely people would be to turn to their local pharmacists for testing and treatment um, if, in fact, their doctor was not available to help them. And then finally, we asked questions that are sort of in more my wheelhouse as a professor of politics and government um, about, uh, you know, whether or not they believe the, um, the, the virus is being um, accurately reflected in the media or if, in fact, it is being hyped a bit. Um, and also then, interestingly, questions about whether or not people have an accurate perception of how the virus um, is, is transmitted as well as the kind of steps that people can take in order to mitigate their risks for becoming infected. So a lot of stuff to cover today. How easy was it to get people to respond to the survey? In other words, if you reached 1,008 people, how many attempts did you have to make in order to get those people who responded to talk well, to you? Yeah, again, I'm sure as, as, as many of your listen, listeners are familiar with, there is, um, you know, an increasing problem, um, in the public opinion world of, of non-response bias, right? The, the, the fact that there are relatively few people who are willing to take part in any kind of public opinion survey. So to answer your question about how many, um, phone calls needed to be made in order to reach that magical number of a thousand and eight, there were many, many, many phone calls, uh, made. However, this is not a, a problem that is unique to the polling work that we do at Carolyn Dickinson. It is, it is endemic, you know, across the industry. Uh, without getting too wonky and going into too many details on this, the available research, however, does suggest that despite the fact that we have declining response rates, the accuracy of uh, surveys remain um, really on par with how they have been over the course of the age of modern polling. So it is certainly something that is of concern. Um, that's why some people are trying to move into an online world for conducting their interviews. But by and large, the uh, probability sample that is gathered through telephone interviews remains the gold standard in public opinion research. Do you think that because this was about COVID-19, the responses were better or worse or that it made any difference at all? 
I don't think it made any difference at all. These also were questions that were embedded within, um, a, you know, a series of other questions that are not, you know, part of our conversation today. So I, I don't I, I saw no evidence that this is at all that the response that excuse me, that the response rate that, uh, you know, accompanies this particular survey um, was affected at all by the, the nature of the questions that were asked. Were respondents compensated in any way? No, they were not. There was no compensation for the respondents. Before we get into the specifics of the survey, just to make sure that we're, we all understand what the issues we have at the moment are as of the first week in April 2020, the tests for COVID-19 are only available through specific testing centers and testing kits, and not through pharmacies. Is, is that accurate? Yes, that is correct. There have been testing centers that have been established across uh, multiple sites um, in various states. So patients are able to go to these testing centers in order to be tested. There are a lot of issues that we can discuss later on with these testing centers. Um, the demand definitely um, is overwhelming uh, the supply of tests that we currently have. Um, so testing is obviously being done in hospitals as well as these testing centers. There's also been talk about wealthy people and celebrities having earlier access to testing through private means. Where does that fall in this spectrum that we're discussing? I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure I have anything really meaningful to say about that question. Julie, do you? Uh, I don't either. I'm not, uh, I'm not sure about celebrity access to tests. So let me try the question from a different angle. If someone was able and willing to pay out of pocket, so not rely on their insurance company or the government, but wanted to be tested for COVID-19, are there means, can they go, for example, to their neighborhood pharmacy, can they contact someone online and order a COVID-19 test? Is that currently available? As of right now, that is not an option. However, CMS has announced that Medicare, Medicare Advantage and Medicaid will cover COVID-19 diagnostic testing. And the recently approved CARES Act expands coverage for COVID-19 testing and immunization. Um, but many of the more details of those acts, including who can provide these services and how they'll be reimbursed, really haven't been determined by HHS yet its sub-agencies or health plans. So it is something that um, will be provided. However, um, to what extent or who can specifically do these tests has not been determined yet. We have recent approval, for example, Abbott Laboratories produce point-of-care testing that can produce results, um, positive test results within five minutes. At the current time, in the current landscape, these tests are not available at local pharmacies. The article that I read most recently in the Palm Beach Post of someone who shared her own first person account, so she went to a testing center to be tested, she said that it would be five to six days before she got her results. Is that 
the norm, or are these five-minute tests the norm? The more rapid point-of-care tests have just recently been approved. It may take some time for those tests to be able to actually reach the market and be accessible to patients. The current tests that are available do take several days to receive the results. There is also a difference between the COVID-19 tests that we have stateside and the ones that the UN offered when the pandemic was in its early stages. What is the difference? Why don't we have the same tests as it were that most other countries are using and or are most other countries using the same tests? I think this is a underlying um, a source of frustration for a lot of the healthcare workers in this country that there really haven't been enough tests um, produced and available um, and Americans as a result don't have access to as much testing. There has been a push with recent um, regulations and laws that have been put in place to expand uh, the availability of tests and the production of tests. Uh, For example, on March 30th, the FDA issued emergency use authorizations for COVID-19 diagnostics and a total of 22 authorized tests. And like we mentioned, there's recent development of rapid COVID-19 tests that will confirm positive tests more quickly. Uh, So we really have the FDA working with over 200 test developers who are willing to submit emergency use authorization requests to the FDA for tests um, that detect the virus. So there is a push towards developing more tests and making them available. What I would also, yeah, can I just jump in here? I I think I would also add that, you know, the kind of questions that you're asking about, you know, why are, why does the United States differ in regard to the kind of testing that is being done relative to other parts of the world? And, you know, your, your earlier question about the perception, at least, that you know, perhaps if you have the right connections, you're somehow able to jump to the front of the line and get a test. I mean, I think these are all really interesting, legitimate questions that are that are probably going to be asked in in the postmortem that happens after we get through this pandemic. And I think that they are just illustrative of the larger, I think, um, questions that we have about you know our leaders and 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 the trust that we may have in them to get us through something like this. You know, why why is it that it appears as if somebody who might have better connections is able to um, discern much more quickly whether or not they are infected. I think these are these are great questions. It's just going to take us some time, I think, to, to get to the actual answers once we get through the, the health crisis. This issue of trust that you just mentioned seems to be underlying many people's concerns because right now the things that are certain are very few. They know yeah. that there's a COVID-19 but there's a lot of other things that they don't know, including how it's transmitted, who is most vulnerable, and the information seems to vary depending on location. Yeah. But the one thing that is critical, if we're looking toward pharmacists in the front lines of COVID-19, would be that people need to trust if they go to their pharmacist, if they go to their pharmacy, that they're going to be able to get equal or better care than they would be getting if they went to a testing center or 
ostensibly to their physicians, although it would appear, at least at the moment, that physicians are not forming any part of that process. Is that right? So I think what you bring up, Alina, are some very good points of discussion and something that the nation is grappling with right now. Um, there's a huge strain that's being put on the healthcare system, and the fact that pharmacists currently aren't being utilized for testing um, and for um, future immunization or treatment, and there are um, no laws currently put in place, uh, that's what we're trying to really um, urge policymakers to do, is to give pharmacists the right to perform testing and to immunize when the vaccine becomes available, as well as to initiate treatment when that treatment is approved for COVID-19 testing in order to minimize the strain on the healthcare system, to reduce the number of individuals going to the emergency room and um, to their physicians' um, offices. Uh, and if we can utilize pharmacists more, then we can help to relieve some of the strains on the healthcare system. How many pharmacists are we talking about nationwide? Do you happen to know off the top of your head? So there was a recent um, letter that was sent by the um, head of a pharmacy organization called the American Society of Health System Pharmacists. Um, Paul Abramowitz sent a letter to the vice president um, on behalf of pharmacists and pharmacy technicians that are practicing at the front lines of the COVID-19 response. Um, in the letter, you know, he did mention that he is writing the letter on behalf of um, these pharmacists, and he named about 55,000 uh, pharmacists. Um, and the letter was really important because it's addressing the administration to really take more urgent action to address the shortages of supportive medications that are critical to being able to ventilate patients as well as treat COVID-19 patients. Um, so that letter did uh, quote about 55,000 pharmacists. The total, he's representing 55,000 pharmacists, or do you think that is the approximate number of pharmacists that we have nationwide? Yes, he's writing the letter on behalf of the number of pharmacists that we have nationwide. Where would you describe the relationship of the pharmacist to patients in this spectrum? So the patient to his or her physician, the pharmacist, some anonymous drive-through testing center, it seems like the connection between the patient and the pharmacist would be the easiest point of access, even easier than their physician, because for many patients, getting an appointment with a physician ordinarily can take two, even three months is not extraordinary here in Florida. I'm sorry, Lena, can you repeat repeat your comment? Do you think that the pharmacists are well positioned for this role to play an important role in the testing for the COVID-19 so that since the healthcare system specifically, the hospitals seem to be overwhelmed, if they didn't have to do the testing, 
or if there could be testing done at the drive-through centers. But in addition to that, if people could go to their neighborhood pharmacy and have their tests done, then this would expedite the testing process enormously. Do you think that that's right? Absolutely. And that's really um, what we we want the public to be aware of is that pharmacists are the medication experts. They um, are really trained in infectious disease and how to treat it. They um, at times may have additional postgraduate training to qualify them in specialized areas such as infectious disease and critical care and Um, Also, working in environments, multiple different types of settings, such as emergency departments, uh, working in retail settings, um, different areas within the hospital. So it's really important that we empower our pharmacists to be able to support the nation's COVID-19 response. Um, And really, there was a, a joint policy recommendation that was developed by multiple pharmacy organizations that really recommends empowering our pharmacists, um, allowing them the authority to order, collect specimens, conduct and interpret tests, and when appropriate to initiate treatment for various infectious diseases, and that includes COVID-19. It's estimated that about 90% of Americans live within five miles of a community pharmacy. So since they are the medication experts, Since pharmacists are very easily accessible and since they are very well-equipped and trained to provide patient care, it seems that we are really underutilizing this resource. Why do you think that is? Is that a policy issue? Are there regulatory reasons? So that's a great question. (laughs) Um, There are no uh, policies or policies or regulations currently in place that um, provide pharmacists with this authority. There have been multiple documents produced by organizations such as the American Society of Health System Pharmacists encouraging policymakers at this crucial time to take the opportunity to expand the role of pharmacists in the COVID-19 response and really to expand the role of pharmacists in other areas as well. Um, Other areas would include things like allowing pharmacists to be able to operate across state lines, including telehealth, authorizing pharmacists to conduct therapeutic interchanges and substitution without physician authorization when product shortages arrive, and really allowing pharmacists to be able to um, uh, immunize when the vaccine becomes available. Uh, Currently, pharmacists do have some of these capabilities. For example, pharmacists are authorized to immunize in all of the states in the United States. Um, Which vaccines they're able to provide and to which patient age groups is really state-specific. But at this current time, um, we have nothing in place that would allow pharmacists to um, immunize across the board for all patients who are indicated Uh, the coronavirus vaccine once it becomes available. We also have no regulation in place for pharmacists to initiate treatment, um, whatever the treatment may be, for example, antiviral treatment, once it becomes um, approved by the FDA for treating uh, coronavirus. So uh, there are multiple organizations that are really um, urging policymakers at this time to utilize pharmacists as a resource um, and uh, 
There are multiple reasons why they may not be utilized uh, right now, but there's a lot of advocacy efforts going into really helping policymakers recognize that pharmacists should be utilized more extensively. There have been stories in the media about pharmacy errors and pharmacists saying that they are overworked to the point that they are making mistakes. They know they're making mistakes, and yet they have no choice. Could that be an issue, and how widespread are those concerns? Certainly. So uh, healthcare provider burnout is an issue across the board with multiple different types of healthcare providers. It is something that has attracted a lot of attention, especially in the recent years, and uh, there's more and more research being produced around clinician burnout as well as uh, clinician wellness. Um, pharmacists definitely are reported amongst those that um, are reporting burnout, uh, working for an extensive number of hours, especially in a retail setting, and, um, and, and the fact that they have this burnout um, definitely is being publicized. However, um, again, I encourage uh, companies, I encourage pharmacies to really take a look at uh, what policies do they have in place regarding pharmacist wellness um, at their workplaces and to really establish those types of policies if they don't already have them. Um, this is a great opportunity to take a look at really how, how hard pharmacists are working across the board because they are part of those uh, providers that are at the front line and making sure that we are addressing um, wellness as well as minimizing burnout. Um, however, being able to expand the role of pharmacists um, and uh, the burnout that pharmacists um, are experiencing right now, um, I would caution us to not use that as uh, a reason to withhold these expanded roles from pharmacists. Um, actually, I think that expanding the role of pharmacists to be able to perform testing and immunization for COVID-19 as well as initiating treatment will help um, relieve the strain on the healthcare system will help us to tap into um, hundreds of thousands of more healthcare providers that can help with the response to this pandemic um, and uh, ultimately help to reduce the number of patients who are going to the hospital. And as you know, and as your listeners know, we are running out of ventilators and we are struggling with having enough hospital beds to uh, accommodate these patients. Uh, so if we can reduce the number of patients who are going to the hospital, um, we can potentially uh, help to uh, minimize the strain on the healthcare system as well as improve patient outcomes. And studies have really shown that when a pharmacist is involved in the process, they can increase immunization rates. So utilizing the pharmacist um, based on the research that we currently know and have shows that pharmacists can improve outcomes and uh, really we should be utilizing them. How would you deal with the issue of the shortage of personal protective equipment or the PPEs that they say there is currently, as described by media and leaders across the country, a severe shortage of PPEs for frontline workers. If we were to add pharmacy personnel to the list of test facilities and 
if they were assisting to address the COVID-19 pandemic, what would that mean in terms of this shortage? Would it instead be putting pharmacists and pharmacy staff in harm's way if there isn't enough equipment and they're added to the staff that's involved? Certainly. So uh, the shortage of PPE is uh, well established. We know that there's a lack of PPE for healthcare workers, um, and it's reported that the U.S. federal stockpiles of emergency medical gear are almost depleted. Um, but really what's important here is that we have healthcare providers who are able to provide patient care. Um, there are certain guidelines that are coming out for how to extend the lifespan of certain PPE and some alternatives that can be used. Um, there are also companies that, that are looking at increasing the amount of PPE that uh, can be produced, um, specifically, uh, you know, for example, ventilators, right? We know that there aren't enough ventilators in hospitals for patients who are critically ill. Um, at times, we have two patients at once connected to a ventilator instead of one. Um, but there are measures that are being um, taken to assure that we're ramping up our supply. For example, um, President Trump on Thursday invoked the Defense Production Act to aid companies to build ventilators for coronavirus patients to receive the supply of materials they need. Um, and so there are measures being taken to increase. Um, these uh, devices, equipment, as well as PPE. Um, however, I would really um, caution us from uh, withholding additional authority given to pharmacists who can help the strain uh, put on the healthcare system just due to a lack of PPE. Let's talk about the survey a little bit. If I recall correctly, there were a lot of people who responded to the survey who said they were stockpiling their prescription meds. Is that correct? Yeah. So when we asked people if they were concerned about the availability of prescription drugs, we then followed up among those who said they had some degree of concern with what, well, then what are you doing in order to make sure that you have your prescription drugs in the coming weeks or months? And um, we found that, you know, among those, uh, there were a fair number of people who were like, for example, increasing the refill to a um, 90, 90 uh, day supply, 53 percent. And um, a full fifth of those are 19 percent who said that they were taking medications less often to make them last. Forty three percent said that they were going to see their doctor. Thirty eight percent said they were going to see their pharmacist and 8% said that they were going to be switching or they had been switching their medications. So they were making decisions about their medications on their own. That's correct. That's right. How do you deal with that if you if you have a prescription that is not renewable for a 90-day refill and you're concerned that you may be stuck at home if you become infectious or if you're afraid to go out? Many people are terrified to leave their homes, are sheltering in place, not even right. going out for groceries. What's the best way to approach that? Well, I think that's certainly a worrisome development that we're seeing in these numbers. Again, if you have a fifth of those who said that they have some degree of concern who are now simply taking their medications less often to make them last, that can have significant health consequences. What 
did you find in terms of what did people think about social distancing? Julie, you want to talk about the numbers there, or do you want me to go in, go into that? Sure, I can talk about it. Sure. So when it came to social distancing, 96% of respondents correctly identified that social distancing is an effective method of minimizing the risk of being infected. Um, however, we had a surprising number of respondents, about one quarter, who believed that taking hot baths or using hand sanitizers or spraying alcohol on the body minimizes the risk of being infected with coronavirus. That was 24%, 29%, and 27%, respectively, who, which all of these are basically uh, false beliefs or myths at minimizing risk. What would you say was the most surprising finding from the survey? So I, I would think, obviously, as a pharmacist, I'm most interested in how Americans responded on their level of confidence on relying on pharmacists for being able to test for coronavirus, uh, for being able to immunize once the vaccine becomes available, and for initiating treatment once it is approved. So um, very interestingly, the majority of Americans, um, greater than 80 percent, reported that um, in the setting of not having access to a physician, uh, that they would feel comfortable and they're actually likely to see a pharmacist at a local pharmacy for COVID-19 treatment, um, testing and immunization. That's something that is very interesting because it really supports the fact that the public views pharmacists as medication experts, as easily accessible, and um, obviously, uh, you know, 90% of Americans live less than five miles from a community pharmacy. So the fact that these pharmacies and pharmacists are, uh, you know, just around the corner, as you may say, and easily accessible in their neighborhoods really shows that Americans are comfortable with utilizing pharmacists in this setting um, and that they value their uh, role in the response to this pandemic. What did you see from your perspective, Krista? You're frequently in the business of organizing polls and looking at the results. Was there something that struck you that was particularly noteworthy about this poll? Well, I mean, when you do this enough, you're never really surprised by public responses to anything. Um, but I would say that the, the question that I found not so much the most surprising, but, you know, perhaps the most, I think, alarming is the one that we asked about, you know, we asked people a series of, of statements and we said, which of these really describe your beliefs? Um, and the, the statements were the coronavirus represents a real threat to the public health. Or the coronavirus is being hyped by the media and is not as harmful as those in the media are making it out to be. And, you know, I would remind your listeners that we were in the field with this survey back in um, uh, back in March, the 22nd through the 27th. Um, I'm sorry, the 17th through the 22nd of March of 2020. And this is such a, a rapidly evolving, um, a rapidly evolving story. Um, so perhaps these numbers would be a little bit different today. But back then, we still found 26% or a quarter of all Americans who said that they believe that the coronavirus is actually being hyped by the media 
and is in fact not as harmful as it is being depicted in the media. That's alarming. You know, when you have one in four Americans who don't really trust what the media is telling them about this, that I think is something that we should all be concerned about. It's one thing to say that you distrust the media on matters that are not of life and death importance, but it becomes something quite different when we really are talking about being able to trust those voices that you're hearing to tell you reliable, solid information about things like a pandemic where people's lives, in fact, are at risk. So I think that was not so much the most surprising, but certainly the most alarming finding that I saw in this in this uh, spate of questions. Do you think that this is related to the issue that national leaders are saying that media is the enemy? Well, I think that's certainly part of it. I, you know, we, we don't have any questions to, to, to back that. We didn't have any questions on the survey to back that statement up. But, I mean, look, the media is, even before the current administration, you know, the media had been experiencing a setback in um, the public's trust. And then when you layer on top of that um, statements from national leaders that the media is something that you cannot trust, you know, almost lock, stock, and barrel, then it feeds into this distrust that we have for our opinion leaders in the United States. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that there are not plenty of reasons to be, um, I think, critical of the mass media, the news media in, in recent years. Um, but again, I think that we all need to be concerned when we have one in four Americans who really don't think that they can trust what the, uh, the news media is telling them about a pandemic. Do you think this is related to the political divide that we have right now? Oh, certainly, certainly, because if you look at the numbers um, and, and we, you know, we broke it up across a variety of demographic groups. And so, for example, if you look at the difference between Republicans and Democrats and their responses to this, 78 uh, percent of Democrats believe that this is, in fact, a real threat to the public's health um, as compared to 59 percent of Republicans. So, again, even though, you know, even though there are a majority of both, uh, groups of individuals, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, who believes that this is a threat, you do have a statistically significant difference between the two groups, with Republicans being more likely to believe that this is more of a hype than it is uh, something that is a real threat. Were there other differences other than by political party, meaning by gender? Your uh, group was about half and half, right, uh, 48 male and 52 female of your respondents? Right. So we had, yeah, so we had the, the, the balance that you would expect from a general population survey of, of men and women. There were some interesting demographic differences, particular to gender. Um, I think it would be safe to say, so, for example, looking at the question that we were just discussing, um, women are, are slightly bit more likely to believe that this is a real threat as opposed to men. So 72% of women believe that this is a threat as compared with 65% of men, with men being slightly more likely than women to believe it's, it's more of a hype. But, uh, you know, I don't want to make too much out of the gender differences or um, on this or any of the other questions. There actually were not as many demographic differences you might normally see in any kind of public opinion survey. Were there geographic differences uh, were there particular regions of the country or states, urban versus rural, that stood out? 
Well, we didn't break the data down that way. So we broke it down by region in the United States with it being northeast, the north central part of the country, the south and the west. And again, I'm just scanning the numbers here. And there really were not that many regional differences either, which I guess might be a little bit surprising because we certainly know that uh, this this virus, this pandemic is is affecting different parts of the country at different times. Um, but despite that, there, there don't really appear to be any major regional differences that are obvious in this in this um, in this data collection. What about by race or ethnicity? Did you notice any particular trends? Were people of a particular group more likely to trust their pharmacists or more likely to trust the authorities, et cetera? Just taking a look at our survey results here. Um, Certainly speak to the political questions, but anything in regard to, you know, pharmacological use. Yeah. I, when looking at our survey results, I didn't notice any um, large differences in terms of uh, age groups or race and ethnicity or education level in terms of whether or not they would be likely to seek care from a pharmacist or to be immunized by a pharmacist um, or to be tested by a pharmacist. Across the board, this, the results were pretty similar in terms of their views of um, whether or not they would utilize a pharmacist. Yeah, and in regard to the questions that are a little bit more political in nature, I, I don't see anything that's all that particularly noteworthy. Occasionally there might have been some trivial differences between white, black, Hispanic, um, uh, respondents, but, but I, I don't want to, you know, say anything that would, that would suggest a general trend, um, in racial and ethnic differences. About 16% of your respondents were Hispanic, is that right? That is correct. And so when you say Hispanic, do you mean Spanish dominant or English dominant or both? Um, it's both. So the way it works is there's a series of questions that we ask on any survey. Um, and then based on responses to questions relating to race and ethnicity, we're able to group people into white, black um, and Hispanic categories. So what I would do if, if your um, if your listeners are interested, we have a, uh, a full uh, press release on our website that would provide some of the, you know, more more technical answers to how we're actually measuring some of these things. Um, and I'm happy to provide that at the end of, of, um, of the interview here. And I'm also, I, I believe our contact information would also be available, and I would invite anyone with any questions about the survey to contact either myself or Julie. What are your next steps? Are you planning a follow-up poll as this pandemic continues to evolve? As we're seeing that we have, what oh, I think it's a million people now that have right. the, the, pan, the, the COVID-19. Are you planning on further polls to follow the progress? What, what are your thinking? What's your thinking? Yes, I think this was just back. Not think. I know this was this was one um, attempt at, at jumping in here rather early in this and trying to get an understanding of uh, you know in particular the relationship between this this pandemic and the use of uh, pharmacists. And we will certainly be revisiting these questions and likely developing others as we proceed through this pandemic. What? Would you, what kinds of questions, what, what is your takeaway from this survey that you would want to learn more about or that you would 
use in order to prepare for the coming surveys? Right. Well, I can certainly speak to the, the, the more political questions that I think are rather interesting to come from this that I would like to see explored in further detail. Certainly the one related to how people are perceiving this. Do they believe that it is, in fact, something that should be uh, seen as a threat to the public health or is it something that is more an artifact of media hype? Uh, you know, I can imagine a host of questions related to those attitudes. You know, such as where are people getting their news and information? Is there a relationship between um, where people learn about this and their attitudes toward trust versus hype? Um, so those are things that certainly come to mind in subsequent surveys. And I'm sure Julie probably has a host of other possible questions that flow from from those that we uh, asked on this particular survey. Absolutely. So we asked questions about uh Americans' comfort level with using a pharmacist in the setting of not having access to a physician. I'd love to revisit this and really ask uh, their views on utilizing a pharmacist, even if they did have access um, to all other resources. Um, how likely are they to use pharmacists? I'm curious to see the answers to those questions as the pandemic evolves, you know, two, three months out. Um, if we still have the same issues that we're facing today or if we are in a worse situation, how will really the public view and utilize pharmacists um, considering how this pandemic may evolve? Um, also kind of interested in looking at, um, you know, what is the situation with drug shortages? If we're looking at two, three months from now, are um, Americans having a harder time getting their medications. We know China is a huge producer of active pharmaceutical ingredients. Uh, we know that India produces about 70% of generic drugs. So as those countries are still struggling with the pandemic, how is that impacting drug shortages and how is that impacting Americans? Um, and really what actions are they taking um, in order to make sure that they have their prescriptions I'm also kind of interested in the fact that, um, you know, obviously we saw a quarter of Americans respond that uh, they had certain false beliefs in how to prevent the virus um, and information about transmission. Uh, so we can see that there's a good, good group of Americans who are misinformed about the virus. So it'd be interesting to look back at, you know, again, where are they getting this information? What resources are they using? What impact does social media have on how they are getting information um, and uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, information and hype about certain treatments and medications that are being investigated as well. Um, some of the medical literature that's coming out um, is, is not being performed or um, interpreted with as much scrutiny as we uh, usually would um, review this literature. Uh, we, um, of course, know that we must follow as healthcare providers evidence-based medicine. But there's a lot of studies that are coming out that um, may have study design flaws. Um, and how is that information being interpreted not only by the media, but on various platforms such as social media and impacting um, patient behavior, healthcare provided behavior? Uh, you know, there are some reports that have come out about um, uh, healthcare providers or patients stockpiling drugs that are thought to potentially be beneficial for COVID-19, such as anti-malarial drugs like hydroxychloroquinolone. Um, so it's affecting how people are acting and the actions that they're taking um, based on very limited 
clinical data that we have right now. So I'd be interested in seeing where are people getting their information and how that's affecting their behavior. Yeah, and as, as Julie was talking, I think that I'm, I'm glad you raised the, the importance of social media because you're absolutely right. This is not usually, we're not talking just about traditional news sources, but I think we're also talking about um, social media as a means for people to get information and how that can, um, you know, I think be used often for both good and bad um, purposes. The other thing that I would say is, you know, we're also talking about something that is heavily science oriented. And so this is an area that, that people simply don't know much about in general. And, you know, when that happens, we, we do tend to see, um, I think, the greater ease of, of information to be used um, for purposes that, both, uh, that, that are both good and bad. And um, so I think that that's another reason why it would be really important to continue to revisit these questions about um, where are people getting their news and information about this and as a way of trying to pinpoint where potential misinformation is being passed on to the general public that can really have significant health consequences for people who listen to that and, and perceive it as, as an accurate reflection of what is going on. Just to go back for a minute, you talked about the anti-malarial medications, and there's been a lot of controversy about that. As I understand it, there is no evidence whatsoever that the anti-malarial meds have any effect on the virus. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. So there has been a lot of hype about anti-malarial drugs, such as chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, um, with another antibiotic called azithromycin, um, with the hype that it can reduce viral loads in patients. Currently, we have very limited clinical data for chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. There was one study, one French study, that at day six did show that the combination of hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin um, helped to produce negative PCR results. Um, however, there is a lot of caution at um, uh, over um, extending the results of this study. Uh, this was a small, non-randomized study. The data on disease severity was unclear. Um, they included asymptomatic patients when the study was included, um, as well as information on disease progression and clinical outcomes was not presented. So we really need additional information before any conclusions can be made. Um, the FDA did issue an emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine that promotes the or permits, excuse me, the distribution of the drug from the strategic national stockpile for use in adults or adolescents who weigh 50 kilograms or more, who have been hospitalized with COVID-19, and for whom clinical trial is not available or participation is not feasible. So at this time, the FDA states that hydroxychloroquine may be effective in treating COVID-19 patients. But again, we really need more data before uh, we can definitively say that it works. So if someone has, say, leftover stock of these medications from a trip that they took or if they are somewhere that has malaria and they have these available and they're concerned that they have COVID-19, is this something that they want to risk? So, of course, with any medication, there are potential side effects and drug-drug interactions that, of course, um, must be considered when initiating any therapy. Um, really, at this time, we can't recommend that a patient 
Of course, a patient should never self-initiate medication or self-treat themselves, especially for something like COVID-19. Um, they really should be seeking medical care if they are experiencing signs and symptoms of COVID-19. And it's very important that the decision as to whether or not any medication should be initiated should be a decision based on the interaction between the physician and the patient um, and a discussion and obviously an assessment of the patient's situation. And of course, the system is overwhelmed. I've heard of cases where patients have called their doctors, they've described the symptoms, and the doctors have told them to go to a testing center, and that was the end of it. Uh, so people are feeling, of course, concerned and anxious. Is there information available through pharmacists? Are there websites? Are there sources of information that our listeners can go to where they can learn more about these issues from pharmacists, where there is a, a additional sources of questions and answers, or maybe that they can access actual pharmacists uh, on the phone or make appointments? What can you tell us about that? Certainly. So, uh, the local pharmacist is really going to be the best place to start. So calling your local pharmacy, having a discussion with the pharmacist, the pharmacist is definitely qualified to help guide the patient in determining whether or not signs and symptoms that they're experiencing may be associated with COVID-19 and helping to triage the patient helping to determine whether or not the patient should seek medical care. The recommendation really right now is if you're experiencing signs and symptoms, try to get in touch with your physician. Obviously, you can get in touch with your pharmacist who will be very accessible. Um, and then based on that conversation um, uh, to determine, do you need to, to go to the hospital at that point? Do you need to go to a testing center? That's a decision that can be made um, in that discussion with the physician or the pharmacist. Um, there are multiple resources online, but keeping in mind misinformation is always um, uh, readily accessible online as well. So it's important to be directing patients to credible resources online. For example, the CDC's website, World Health Organization. Um, there are multiple pharmacy organization websites as well that have information for patients, such as the American Pharmacists Association, and the American Society of Healthcare System or Health System Pharmacists, um, APHA and ASHP, are some resources as well. Um, but really tapping into the resource of the local pharmacist um, will be useful during this time. There are people taking antibiotics, self-prescribing, because they think that antibiotics are going to kill the virus. What would you say about that? Certainly. So antibiotics are used to treat infections caused by bacteria. Coronavirus is not a bacteria. It is a virus. So antibiotics will be useless in treating coronavirus um, and the signs and symptoms of COVID-19. If a patient is, for example, admitted to the hospital and they have a bacterial pneumonia, we may use antibiotics in that setting. However, antibiotics within themselves are not indicated and will not be useful in treating coronavirus. What about face masks? These very inexpensive face masks that you can buy in packages or the homemade variety that seem to be popping up everywhere. Is it true that the virus is smaller than the openings in the masks and can penetrate Certainly. So I can talk a little bit about um, the, the current state of masks. So 
The White House right now is expected to announce a new policy based on the CDC's guidance that Americans should wear cloth masks in an effort to prevent coronavirus spread. And the intent here is really to prevent the wearer of the mask from unknowingly spreading the disease when in public. People can be infected and contagious without having symptoms. And these are the people we're most worried about right now. Um, and so uh, would it be reasonable to recommend that people wear even cloth masks, um, homemade masks in a grocery store, for example? And the answer to that question would be yes. Um, wearing a mask is not an excuse, though, to have social gatherings or to forget or abandon hand washing. Um, those, still, those recommendations are still important. Um, obviously, the higher grade protective masks like N95 masks should really be reserved for hospital and healthcare workers. Um, homemade masks are thought to be better than nothing, but of course they're not the same as N95 masks. Um, and of course cloth masks or homemade masks would not be preferred for healthcare workers. So in fact, the cloth masks are not a protection whatsoever for the wearer. They're a protection if they are infected or someone else that they might spread their sneeze or cough droplets onto. That is correct. What about the antibacterial wipes or the alternatives? There's a lot of talk about using different method, alcohol, antibacterial wipes, bleach. I've heard of people actually just using bleach to wash their hands. Alcohol, as in drinking alcohol, vodka and rum and gin. Sure. The, the CDC currently recommends daily disinfection for frequently touched surfaces such as tables, doorknobs, light switches, etc. Um, this is very important. Bleach can be used for these disinfecting purposes of objects in your home that are frequently touched. Um, it's recommended that bleach be diluted with cold water to make an effective disinfectant against bacteria, fungus, and many viruses, including coronaviruses. Uh, the recommendation is to use a quarter cup of bleach per one gallon of cold water, um, but of course, to be sure to follow the directions on the label of the bleach. Alcohol can be used as well. Um, alcohol in multiple forms, including rubbing alcohol, is effective for killing many pathogens. Um, you would dilute alcohol with water um, you can dilute it with aloe vera to make hand sanitizer, but you want to be sure to um, keep the alcohol concentration around 70% to kill coronaviruses. Many hand sanitizers that are available commercially have a concentration of about 60% alcohol. Lysol contains about 80%, and these are all effective against coronaviruses. Um, it's recommended that certain chemicals or solutions be left on the surface for certain amounts of time. For example, solutions of 70% alcohol should be left on surfaces for 30 seconds. Um, that includes things like cell phones. Um, we use these devices all day, every day. Um, of course, we want to check the advice of the phone manufacturer, make sure we don't void any warranty. But um, using, uh, for example, 70% alcohol and leaving it on the surface for 30 seconds would be important in ensuring that we kill the viruses. Um, generally, pure or 100% alcohol will evaporate too quickly for this purpose. How many studies confirm that you can contract the COVID-19 from objects as opposed to from 
other people who are infected? Well, there have been studies that have um, been published on the uh, transmission of coronavirus. We know that it's transmitted from person to person, um, obviously through things like coughing and sneezing. Um, there was a recent study that came out or a recent report in the Annals of Internal Medicine about a six-month-old infant who tested positive for COVID-19 with a high viral load but no symptoms. And the virus was um, found on the infant's bedding, their bed rail, and one table that was about a meter away from the bed tested. These all tested positive for coronavirus. So there is definitely a risk for environmental contamination. So there's speculation, but there are no actual studies that demonstrate categorically that you can get the coronavirus from surfaces. Is that correct? There is data available on how long coronavirus um, can live on different surfaces. We know that this can be a few hours for up to several days. But in terms of the actual number of studies, I'm aware of, I'm unaware of how many actual studies um, have been performed on that. But there is data to support that coronavirus does live on inanimate objects, and that can last for up to a few days, depending on the uh, quality or the type of substance. So there's data, as I recall, even from the cruise ship that, that demonstrated the virus was able to survive up to 17 days on surfaces, but there is no data to prove that there is a guarantee that you will get the virus, the disease, if you touch a surface. I'm right? not aware of... I'm not aware of any studies that specifically have stated that. However, many of our um, uh, health uh, resources um, really acknowledge the fact that the virus can spread if a person touches a surface with the virus on it and then touches specifically their mouth, their nose, or their eye. So this is something that um, is really being warned against and uh, the public is being uh, made aware of the fact that the virus can live on these surfaces, and it's reasonable to conclude that touching those surfaces infected with the virus and then touching your mouth or your nose or your eye could lead to being infected with the virus. Krista and Julie, thank you for joining us from Califon, New Jersey, and Madison, New Jersey. Thank, thank you for you. having us. And to our audience, you have been listening to Krista Jenkins, Ph.D., who is Professor of Politics and Government, and Julie Kalabalik Hoganson, PharmD, who is Director of Pharmacy Practice at Fairleigh Dickinson University, who discussed pharmacists in the front lines of COVID-19 and their recent national survey. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.